Hello friends, Ryan Rodriguez here. As you may remember from the last time, this is kind of the Coolness Chronicles, but also kind of not. It's the Chronicles Reconsidered. In this mini-sode series, we focus on films previously riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000. I watch these films in their original form, and then try to review them on their own merits, then compare my findings with the quote-unquote experiment. So what do you say? Are you ready to reconsider the Chronicles? If so, climb aboard, because we're going through a ride through some weird shit. Also, spoilers. Last time, we reconsidered a random recommendation, but this week we're going to return to the subject of MST3K, covering two experiments from the show's first cable season on the Comedy Channel, starting with episode 106, The Crawling Hand. The Crawling Hand. Someone, please, come in. Push the red. Oh, Steve, help me. Help me. Claws. Ah! What does it mean I'm stacked? Stacked? (laughs) (laughs) You'll experience the new dimension in motion picture thrills when you see The Crawling Hand. The Crawling Hand demands to live. Commands you to see it. A disembodied hand holds the key to a killer more deadly than the supernatural. The remains of an astronaut destroyed in space fights for life. A requiem for an astronaut. He's a killer. He doesn't come over here quietly and put that bottle down. I'll have to shoot him. But he's just a kid! It strikes deadly. Silently. It will not relent. The crawling hand must destroy in order to exist. It will strike you deadly. The crawling hand. It's a heartwarming film about an astronaut blown up in space and his rogue arm that washes up on a random beach. The arm then gains sentience and forms a special bond with a local med student who brings the arm home, therefore giving it access to lots of townspeople's necks that are ripe for a strangling. Did I mention that contact with the arm also makes the med student strangle people himself while spontaneously wearing heavy eye makeup and pouting like Morrissey at his most melancholy? Okay. So I know that doesn't sound terribly heartwarming, but what if I told you that it had the skipper from Gilligan's Island in it? Still no? What if I told you that the hand's murderous rampage is temporarily thwarted by a hungry cat in a junkyard? I thought I'd get you eventually. While this movie is thoroughly stupid, cheap, and incoherent, there's actually a silver lining to the cinematic turd cloud. Although you can easily tell when the arm is an actual person's arm or just a fake arm prop, The shots of people getting strangled by the real arm are actually composed in an interesting way, taking advantage of the camera frame's blind spots. I know that this is a very minor thing to praise about the movie, but if I didn't praise this, I would have nothing else to talk about, since nothing actually happens in the entire movie. Sidebar. There is an old man who runs a restaurant and refuses to let his adolescent diners dance, even though he has a large jukebox. So there's that, I I guess. 
All right. No dancing. No dancing. Not allowed. No dancing. No dancing. Not allowed. What a grouch. Just like Footloose. No rats. Not allowed. Unless they're on the menu. End sidebar. This is a movie that literally ends with two non-characters taking away the titular hand and wrist and elbow, who, instead of taking it away to be destroyed, like they're ordered to do, decide to, well, let's just say, be curious. And stupid. Come on, let's get moving. That's your trouble. No curiosity. You'll never get any place without curiosity. You've got to find out about things. Yeah? Well, I like it that way. What harm would it do to take a look? I've got the key. It might be dangerous. <laughs> what do you think? It's alive? You don't see any holes in the box. You think it'll bite you or something? You're always talking me into doing something I don't want to do. Have I ever steered you wrong? Shockingly, despite the utter cheapness of the production, it cost $100,000 in 1963, adjusted to about $820,000 with inflation. Where the money went is beyond me. I know it wasn't part of the skipper's salary because Gilligan's Island didn't premiere until the year after this was released. Maybe the cat was in the Screen Actors Guild and refused to work for scale? I don't know. The only way that this works is if you think of it as Thing from the Addams Family's origin story. I know it certainly helped me during the painfully dull middle portion of the movie. The episode built around the movie is one of the better episodes of the first season, and possibly of the entire series of Mystery Science Theater 3000. For a relatively decent review of the episode, please see Chapter 2 of The Coolness Chronicles. For those of you who listened to that episode but forgot all about it, like I tend to do, I'll just point out that when MST3K did its flashback episode late into Season 2, Experiment 209, The Hellcats, this was the only episode from Season 1 to have a clip shown. And in case you were wondering what segment was chosen to be highlighted, it involves Joel and the bots pretending to be strangled by disembodied hands and doing their best Shatner impressions in the process. Vision fading. Uh, must. Must cut transponder from wrist. Fashion crude phaser device with bed slat and light bulb. Must control myself. Must find pastel colored native female. Execute prime directive. Let's move on, shall we? Next up, the last episode of the first season, based on production code, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Experiment 113, The Black Scorpion. The film is about Darcy Walker, a police detective whose secret identity is the Black Scorpion, a superhero vigilante for justice. The Black Scorpion does not have any actual superpowers, but, like Batman, she fights evildoers with a combination of martial arts, great agility and strength, and many technological devices, including a high-powered, specially equipped car. Oh. Oops. I'm sorry, I was actually reading the wrong Wikipedia page. That was for some crappy Roger Corman Showtime TV movie. This is the right film. animals crawl out of crater of volcano great herds of cattle stampede before this living inferno vast area devastated by appalling new horror a creature named the black scorpion by panic-stricken people of san lorenzo entire population prays for deliverance for miles around cowboys came upon one dead steer after another one of them had heard the tale of the demon bull of the maricopa having lost family or friends 
something absolutely unknown. We could be in another world. Nation's leaders confer as news received a possible threat to capital. This is a city of four million people. If word of this leaks out, the panic of the population could be worse than the Scorpions. The Black Scorpion destroys communications. Hundreds annihilated. scale never achieved before by any science fiction picture. Thousands in the cast. The Black Scorpion is a 1957 Mexican-American co-production about two geologists, American Dr. Scott and Mexican Dr. Arturo Ramos, sent to Mexico to investigate an earthquake that strikes and gives birth to a new volcano. Along the way, in the town of San Lorenzo, the doctors come across a house that's been completely destroyed by some unnatural force. Additionally, livestock in the area have been butchered at night, and strange roars have been heard by the villagers, who believe the instigator to be a demon bull. The doctors have their suspicions, so they find a giant claw mark in the dirt and bring an imprint to a local scientist who apparently learned all of his lines phonetically. Where something knocks down dwellings, flattened cornfields, it would be amazing if there were no footprints. Never saw a moolage of a print this size. Whatever it is, my friends, I don't believe anyone has ever seen a foot, a claw, this size, except those poor unfortunates who wish they never had. One question, Doctor. I hope I can answer it. The alcohol, the distilled water, the salt solution, I, I can understand that. But what's the tequila for? Well, uh, in your country, I believe you call it uh, the coffee break. <laughs> when the doctors team up with a local rancher, the lovely Teresa Alvarez and her tiny waiter Juanito, they discover that the dastardly culprits are humongous scorpions. How they got so big is not exactly discussed, nor why they cause earthquakes and earthquake-related volcanoes. The Mexican military might is no match for these creatures, and after the scorpions attack some telephone linemen as well as some villagers, our brave intrepid doctors lower themselves into the creature's underground lair and collapse its entrance to prevent them from leaving, bound for mayhem again. But it doesn't work. The scorpions take their rage to the town yet again, derailing a train and killing scores of villagers. Then, the largest scorpion, for reasons that are never quite clear, goes into an even more murderous rage, kills all the other scorpions, and takes on the village all by himself. The doctors and military lure the scorpion to a stadium, where the tanks shell it repeatedly with no progress. Dr. Scott then comes up with an ingenious plan, an electrified spear shot directly into the scorpion's throat. It's executed perfectly, after an accidentally electrocuting a harmless soldier, and everyone smiles into the end credits. I do have to say, even with the shocking amount of screen time that doesn't feature stop-motion scorpions, this isn't really a bad movie. It's not good, don't get me wrong, but it's merely mediocre, not awful. For a movie that seems to have been produced solely to get financing from a foreign government, it's shockingly respectful to the culture and employs a number of Mexican actors that I'm sure would never get regular work in an American film. Keep in mind, this movie was produced within five years of both Touch of Evil and Bye Bye Birdie, both of which featured Caucasians, Charlton Heston and Janet Leigh respectively, playing Latinos in Brownface, or in Janet Leigh's case, Tanface and Brownwig. 
Of course, most of the acting, aside from the phonetic doctor that I mentioned earlier, is pretty bland, but I doubt Brownface would have spiced things up, no pun intended. The movie's also fairly dull and boring, and takes at least 30 minutes out of an 87-minute runtime for the monsters to actually show up, however sporadically. If you cut out everything but the Scorpions, you might have a decent short film that would at least be good for historical value. Taken together as a cinematic experience, it leaves one wanting. Speaking of those Scorpions, they're animated brilliantly by King Kong creature maker and forefather of the works of Ray Harryhausen, Willis O'Brien. Unfortunately, there are four or five close-ups of a giant drooling model scorpion's face with googly eyes, the same silly face that's on the poster, that are recycled almost every 30 seconds. The blank scorpion is also surprisingly progressive for 1957, because Dr. Scott falls in love with a Mexican woman, the aforementioned Teresa Alvarez. In fact, he's more than a little horny for her, and always makes this known, despite the fact that they're always accompanied by Dr. Ramos and little Juanito. Could throw the scorpion out the window, and then we'd really be alone. Well, except it's for the dog, the that? cook, the small Why boy, and your friend. Why don't we? And amazingly, Teresa survives the events of this movie. Why is this amazing? Because during this time, the Hayes Code had rules against interracial relationships because the Hayes Code was the absolute worst. In fact, if you've watched episode 803 of MST3K, The Mole People, you'll recall that it features a relationship between an unappealing lead in John Agar and a mole woman. It ends with her sudden death because even though she was played by a Caucasian actress and a story point involves her natural Caucasian skin, she was technically born inside of the earth and therefore was of another race. And that movie came out just a year before The Black Scorpion. Perhaps because it was a co-production between nations, the code was a little more malleable, but goddamn, I never thought I'd be grateful for the reign of Jack Valenti. If you're fond of this movie, I recommend the Warner Archive Blu-ray. I don't know how or really why they did it, but it's been digitally restored in such a clean, detailed way that it genuinely looks like it received the same amount of restorative effort as their now-legendary treatment of Citizen Kane. I could argue about which movies truly deserve such an effort for hours, but instead I'll just say that although I was bored, I was never disappointed with the visuals. The MST3K episode built around the movie is one of the weaker installments of the first season, though this could mostly be attributed to absolute exhaustion on the part of everyone involved. The cast and crew had six weeks to turn an industrial park warehouse into a fully functioning soundstage and editing facility, and as well had to produce a 95-minute episode of television, then move immediately into producing 12 more. They went on the air with an unfinished set and a flying-by-the-seat-of-their-pants mentality. Joel's invention exchange in this episode, the electric party favor, is essentially a repackaged version of the electric bagpipes, and the host segments leave a lot to be desired. One sketch features Joel and the bots in sombreros, speaking nonsensical phrases in Spanish, accompanied by absurd subtitles that don't remotely match what's being said. El dando cinemato es la preparo en moto cambrio. Mi casa es su casa. ¿Dónde está tú? El gato y moto e moto. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I mean, oh, man. Oh, boy. Introduco el piñate. Oh, kitty. It's the kind of comedic idea that was never really novel, much less in 1989, and it plays like something that was written in 20 minutes, which, given the time crunch in production, it may have been. Little better is the final host segment, which begins as a cute little puppet show by Servo and Crow, who are convinced that the titular Black Scorpion was animated by Ray Harryhausen. Then Joel enters to drop some knowledge bombs about the actual animator, 
Willis O'Brien. What started as a somewhat humorous moment for the bots becomes a trivia session completely devoid of jokes that would better be utilized in an introduction for the movie and Turner Classic Movies. The end of the episode, however, is an almost complete rebound, especially when Joel reads a letter that initially seems like fan mail for Crow, but quickly becomes rather backhanded. Bro, I think you're doing a fantastic job. I find your commentary for the most part insightful and relevant. Mm -hmm. There are times, however, when it appears as though you are forcing the issue. Ha, psych! And uh, just trying a little too hard. I understand the frustration you must feel given the fact that you are such a unique entity in your field. Not true, I'm an artist, you, you know, must, subject to moods. You must feel as though your cronus somehow stands out as a glaring defect, lessens your credibility in the public mind. Because of this, you sometimes talk simply to be heard, simply to say, hey, No, I I'm don't crow. think so. I don't I just talk that. simply to be heard. Sim I have a reason behind my talk. Simply to say, hey, I'm Crow, look at me. The whole letter plays out on an extreme close-up of Crow's face. Through a rather brilliant puppeteering performance by Trace Beaulieu, Crow appears to go from happy and confident to dejected and defensive, often played silent and utilizing some of Crow's most expressive features, his darting eyes and wide-open mouth. While the episode itself is mostly disappointing, the riffing, on the other hand, while sparse in some areas, is quite good. For instance, when Dr. Ramos finds a molten rock near the base of the volcano, Joel goes into biblical mode. What do you know? A couple of rocks piled on top of other rocks. That's kind of fishy. Just dig down a little bit and, yeah. What? Thou shalt not kit? What? Thou shalt not kit. Huh. Better take that back. Sure make the saddle heavier, but... Hey, Hank! Look at this. It says, thou shalt not kit. Thank you, Doctor. What do you make of that? Well, I guess you. we're not supposed to kit. We're also treated to Trace's Bing Crosby impersonation at several points, most memorably when Dr. Scott has to deal with precocious little Juanito. To write very good, I know how to shoot very good. Yeah, and yeah, we know you're super bored. Too bad you can't act. Hey, can I call you Gary? I have a man. <laughs> and then there's my favorite part of the episode, Servo Overcompensating. I don't know what inspired it, but at least three times throughout the movie, Josh Weinstein, as Servo, delivers a clever, if not basic, joke, then nervously cracks himself up. Cigarette? Yes, it is. I don't know why this is so endlessly funny to me, but it is, and I wish it happened more often. That's all for this week. If you're enjoying these minisodes, tell a friend, share it with a stranger, leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, rate us on whatever source you use, and visit our Facebook page, the links to which are in the show notes for this episode. Every little share and recommendation helps immeasurably. Next time, we'll pump the brakes on MST3K experiments for 20 minutes and discuss a movie that may have never been featured on the show, but it's one that was referenced more than probably any other movie after The Wizard of Oz, 1985's insane crapster piece, Jim Cotta. Until we meet again, friends, remember, do what you love, don't be a dick, and as always... Here in southern Texas, there is an additional problem. Texan. I mean goodbye, for now.
Coolness Chronicles is written, produced, and edited by Ryan Rodriguez. Executive producers are Tracy Rodriguez and Luis Rodriguez. Original music by Bildsherm. Please visit buildsherm.bandcamp.com for more information.